Welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, and with me here in the studio is Ashley Wakefield. Hi, Ashley. Hey. Uh, We've been walking through uh, the book of Isaiah chapter by chapter, and we are now at chapter 17. I can't believe we've done 17 chapters of Isaiah. It's been really fun. And um, for those of you that have just been curious, like, why I started with Isaiah of all books, some of it has been that um, there's a beautiful passage in Acts, actually, where this uh, um, apostle named Philip uh, journeys to the land of uh, Egypt and Ethiopia and meets a eunuch there. And the eunuch happens to be reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip decides to uh, really uh, teach him the book of Isaiah because this Ethiopian can't figure it out. And uh, I've always really related with that Ethiopian eunuch because I feel like a lot of people, myself included, when I first read Isaiah, uh, really didn't understand Isaiah at all and needed someone to do what Philip did and explain a lot of the things in Isaiah. And so that was, I thought, just a good homage to uh, uh, Philip in the New Testament is, well, let's start with Isaiah first, just because that seems to be the story that I relate to the most in, in Acts. So um, that's why we're here. And uh, it's been really fun. It's been a journey through uh, many different, um, sometimes fun passages and sometimes um, <laughs> boring passages, uh, but we've tried to make them as interesting as we can. And I hope that at the end of all of these chapters, you realize how rich and deep and how they're not really boring at all, if you understand them. Uh, and you get a lot of history that's really interesting. We're kind of in a history section right now where we're focusing on different nations around Israel and Judah. And so um, if you're kind of a history buff, this this is really fun for you. If you're a, a person that's not really into history, um, that's uh, going to be a little bit more difficult, uh, I definitely think. But it's also something that I think uh, encourages us to maybe get outside of ourselves a little bit and uh, to imagine what a life would be like in a world outside of you know 2020 and 2021. So uh, right now we are in the prophecy against uh, the city of Damascus. And Ashley, uh, I was going to ask you, what's sort of the background to Damascus? Damascus. Uh, what country are they in? And uh, can you just give us a little bit of a uh, refresher for anybody that's just tuning in on what's uh, what's this uh, city all about? 
Yeah, so when I was um, looking at it, I was actually looking at some more commentaries about this information. And um, for those of you who don't know, because I didn't know this either until I looked it up, was that um, Damascus was actually the capital of Aram, which is basically Syria. Um, so when you're seeing that, just to give clarity on that, and even with um, the title of Ephraim, because I also found out that um, Isaiah often uses um, Ephraim, sorry, to actually refer to the nation of, of Israel, which is what it's referring to there in verses um, 1 through 3. But um, this uh, prophecy kind of goes back to um, Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, um, where you see Rezin, who was the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, they're plotting to come against the um, king of Judah, who was Ahaz at the time, mm-hmm. and they're trying to seize Jerusalem, basically to put a new king named um, to build over it. And so this is when um, Isaiah comes and he's giving a prophecy to Ahaz, basically telling him that this is not going to happen, that God is going to make sure that um, he's protected, that there's actually going to be Assyrians, a, the nation of Assyria is going to come against them and going to stop that from happening, which is um, kind of what's happening in um um, chapter 17. So yeah, that's kind of like the, the basic background of what's going awesome. on. Awesome. So they're basically this uh, nation that we've encountered before in chapter 7 and 8. And you can learn a lot more about um, those chapters if you go back and listen to our episodes on 7 and 8. Um, they're uh, really helpful for understanding just sort of uh, the different nations. I talk about four different nations in those uh, two podcasts. So you can kind of get a uh, handle on that if you need a refresher. All right. Uh, With that being said, thank you so much, Ashley, for giving us that background. And we're going to jump into the um, chapter. A prophecy against Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Oraur will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and the royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. It will be as when reapers harvest the standing grain, gathering the grain in their arms, as when someone gleans heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet some gleanings will remain, as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. In that day, People will look to their Maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars, the work of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. In that day, their strong cities, which they left because of the Israelites, will be like places abandoned to the thickets and the undergrowth, and all will be desolation. You have forgotten God your Savior. You have not remembered the rock your fortress. Therefore, though you set out the finest plants and plant imported vines, though on the day you set them out you make them grow, and on the morning when you plant them you bring them to bud, yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. Woe to the many nations that rage. They rage like the raging sea. Woe to the peoples who roar. They roar like the roaring of great waters. 
Although the peoples roar like the roaring of surging waters, when he rebukes them they flee far away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. In the evening sudden terror, before the morning they are gone. This is the portion of those who loot us, the lot of those who plunder us. All right. So uh, after uh, listening to this chapter, um, once again, you're probably a little bit like lost in the weeds of all these different nations and things. And this is a really interesting chapter because um, really structure wise, this chapter isn't just focused on Damascus and Aram, um, but it's also returning to some of the themes in some of the earlier chapters in the book of Isaiah. So I'll kind of break this down for you before we kind of dive into the weeds of it. We have um, verses one through three, which are really focused on uh, Aram and Damascus, right? And then in verse four, you see it switches and it says, in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade and the fat of his body will waste away. Um, this is kind of letting us know. Um, some of your Bibles even may have like a little break um, in the section before um, uh, in verses one through three, and then there's a break and then there's verse four. And so this is letting us know, hey, okay, this is a new thought and new theme that we're communicating now in these verses. And so verses uh, four through six are one uh, break section, and then we have verses seven and eight, which are a new section, and then we have verse nine that stands all apart from itself as a section, and then we have uh, verses 10 through 11, which are another section, and finally we have uh, the last section, which is 12 through 14. So all of these are individual sections, uh, and these can be really hard for us to navigate uh, if we're not looking at just how the Bible has arranged all of these different individual sections. And uh, so that's uh, just there at the front to give us kind of a bit of a start for how to look at this. So uh, what we have here in the first section is a section addressing uh, Damascus. Um, and we're going to kind of go back and forth. The interesting thing with Damascus is that Damascus is situated in Syria, as Ashley was saying earlier, and Syria is really close to Israel and the ten tribes in Israel. That's why in verse 3 it says the fortified city will disappear from Ephraim, even though it's talking about Damascus, is that you've got this kind of mixture and melding of these two different nations that really in many ways become so close and uh, uh, form alliances and sometimes fight each other um, so often that uh, they kind of get seen as like one and the same throughout a lot of this section. Then in verses 4 th uh, through 6, you have a section um, which starts off with in that day. And if you notice, um, uh, 4 through 6 starts with in that day, 7 through 8 starts with in that day, and then verse 9 starts with in that day. Um, that's your Bible kind of telling you, that's the writer telling you, that all three of these concepts here are all relating the same theme to one another. And this theme here in this chapter is the theme of God eventually bringing about a day in which everything's set right and all of the judgment is going to be leveled against these people. But also that um, in setting things right that um, you see in verses 7 and 8 that um, people will look to God again and that they will worship him and that all the Asherah poles will be taken down. 
and all of this will be uh, brought to a new. But then in verse 9, it then focuses back and says, in that day, uh, there's strong cities, uh, which they left because of the Israelites. And this is, again, going back to Damascus um, and uh, Syria. In that day, their strong cities uh, will be like places abandoned to thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation. So it's kind of confusing because, like, you know, you have verses 1 through 3, which are talking about Damascus. Then in verse 4, we jump to uh, Jacob, and we talk about Jacob for a little bit and Israel. Then in verse 7 and 8, um, this is kind of this global overview of how God will um, be worshipped again in the land. And then in verse 9, we switch back to Damascus. Then in verse 10, we have this uh, new section, which remember how I said Damascus and Israel are really focused as one entity, not really separate entities. Um, so in verse 10, we have this return to um Israel uh, to Isaiah telling Israel, you have forgotten your God, your Savior. You have not remembered your rock, your fortress. And that's the next two lines is focusing on um, Isaiah giving another um, really just uh, oracle against Israel and these northern tribes that are considered Ephraim. And then finally, this uh, last section here is really just a closing section of all these different oracles in which we have um, the writer saying, woe to all the nations that plunder and devastate. And this is both Israel, Damascus, pretty much every nation is doing this during this period of time. And so this is the author kind of taking a step back from the individual um, judgments that he's leveling against uh, different people groups. And he's focusing on uh, this like uh, globally, uh, so to speak, woe to all of these nations that rage like raging seas, um, that roar, um, although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, um, God gets to rebuke them um, when they flee far away. Um, and then in this very ending thing, uh, I really love this, uh, is this moment, Ashley, you pointed this out before we went live, is there's this portion where it says, this is the portion of those who loot us, the lot of those who plunder us. Um, in the evening, sudden terror, before the morning, they're gone. And it's sort of this ending part that God is going to give them retribution for all they do. So hopefully that makes sense of all the mess of this. As, uh, as Ashley and I were recording it, I, I had to stop and be like, okay, wait a second. Let me break this down even more finally because this is really confusing. So this was even hard for me to try and explain. <laughs> uh, was there any questions you still had, Ashley? Was there? I know you had several questions before. Did I explain it pretty well? Yeah, you did. And I, I was actually trying to um, look through the beginning of the end of it just to see if there was anything that I noticed that I wanted to talk about. Now, I did notice at the very beginning where it talks about um, um, the cities of Arawera will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. And I found that kind of interesting because it, it's like God is not giving the people of Damascus peace, but he's giving the the animals their peace, right. uh, which is really interesting because <laughs> I mean, even though this, because uh, I was relating that back to when I saw Leviticus 26 and 6, and granted, that's not about Damascus, that's related to Israel, but it's about God saying, I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. And I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. So it's almost like he's doing the opposite of what he promised Israel. So instead of giving the people peace, he's giving the animals peace mm. in that situation. So that's kind of interesting. It's like, you know, they didn't value the, the land or the peace that they had. So it's like, okay, I'm going to take it away from you and give it to the animals. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. There is this really... Uh interesting theme uh this starts in genesis chapter four where um sin human sin 
um, affects the land and animals mm-hmm. in a very deep and profound way that um, a lot of new research has been showing. Um, one of the interesting things is that in Genesis 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel and then Cain goes off, uh, God comes to Cain and is like, where's your brother? And Cain's like, I don't know, my brother's keeper and all this kind of stuff trying to, you know, pass it off. And God's uh, like reason for why he knows that Cain killed his brother is really interesting. It says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the land. And so it's almost as if the land, it's this image of the land being like Mm -hmm. soaked with blood and it's now uh, crying out. And it's that same language crying out is the same language that um, the Israelites have for God when they are enslaved in Egypt Mm -hmm. and they cry out to God for salvation from the slavery in Egypt. Um, And so it's that same rich, um, not just like a normal cry, but like a desperate sort of like um, just at, at your wits end kind of cry. And so that strong language of the land being so revulsed by what Cain did to his brother. Mm-hmm. It's just a really uh, different way than w- I think we think about it today. I don't mm-hmm. think we give the land uh, as much credit as having that, that kind of uh, like personality even. Mm-hmm. And that also maps itself onto animals who also feel the effects of uh, human sin. Mm-hmm. And uh, oftentimes when humans uh, are punished because of their evil sin, what ends up happening is the animals come back and they have goodness again. You know, mm. they, they are able to flourish again. Um, and it's almost this sense in which uh, God is saying, it's better that humans are not here because animals are better off that way. Um, and the land is better off that way. And uh, that's just a really powerful, it's not a fun point, but it's, it, it is a, a point that I think gets overlooked a lot when we read uh, the Bible. So I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's really, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And it actually kind of reminds me when I was reading in that book, um, I think it's called The True Story of the Whole World, mm-hmm. um, where it talks about um, the issue of sin and how it didn't just affect humans, but how it created brokenness not just in us but also in animals and in the land itself and how god is trying to restore that it make everything whole and not just us Hmm, yeah yeah well uh i think uh that'll do it for us today um there are a few themes that uh do come up again that i'll just call out before we end there's the theme of um evil nations being um uh, water and being like a raging sea. If you've been listening to some of my episodes, you've uh, heard me talk about how um, water gets related to chaos and disorder and terror and uh, just all these different like negative things. Um, so that um, uh, is part of this theme here. We also have um, something I haven't talked about as much, which is uh, in verse 10, it says, uh, it relates God to a rock and to a fortress. And if you notice, that's kind of the main focus of this entire chapter is the focus of fortresses um, and how fortresses are going to be teared down in uh, verse 9. Um, they're just going to be abandoned. But then God in verse 10 is a fortress that's a rock that remains forever. And something of interesting note is that in that time, rocks... Um, and mountains were sort of viewed as safe points where you could set up a settlement. Um, and uh, flat plains were not a great place to set up um, a settlement because uh, 
people could see you from every direction and uh, they would know you were there. Whereas uh, it would be way harder for an enemy nation to attack you if you were set up on a mountain or uh, a rock um, because they have to climb this rock, they have to climb this mountain and they have to get to your city. And it's way easier on a rock or a mountain to carve out stone to build walls than if you're in the middle of nowhere. And so a lot of these reasons, uh, kind of created this uh, society in their time where this was the most valued places that they sought out to establish their biggest cities. Uh, one of the big reasons Jerusalem is kind of heralded as the reason, like the biggest city is because it's really hard to attack it. Um, it's set up on a mountain. And so uh, they had to uh, figure out a way into the city even. And there's a passage in Judge, Judges that's really uh, funny where um, they're attacking Jerusalem, which is owned by Canaanites. And uh, Joshua has to figure out a way to take Jerusalem. And the only way they're able to take it is through deception. And there's this one a guy that's a member of the Canaanites that are living in Jerusalem that ends up uh, leading them in a back way th into the city so that they can take it. Um, and the reason being is they were on a mountain and uh, it's really hard to uh, take out a city that's on a mountain that has like sheer cliffs and things. So um, all of that kind of pulls into this imagery of why God is uh, referenced as a rock and a fortress. Um, it's all that imagery of him being like the most secure place that these people groups could imagine and so when you see it referencing god as rock or fortress um understand a lot of the background of this these people groups and what they would have seen a rock or a fortress to represent in their time which really just represented safety and security and that's why we see this kind of pulled in here so um, those are just two themes to keep in your mind as we go forward those themes uh, god is a rock come up in psalms as well um so we'll get to see those again at some point if i go through the book of psalms which man that would be a tour uh there's 150 of those so uh thank you so much ashley have any final thoughts before we close out Oh, yeah, I just wanted to say that um, that point that you brought up about the, the rock being their safety and their culture is kind of interesting because it kind of reminds me about the New Testament when Jesus is giving parables. He always makes it relevant to what's going on during the time. Right. And so when God is saying these things, he's trying to make it relevant to them to make sure that they understand what he wants to be with them and how they should perceive him, which is really, you know, interesting. So it's like God wanting them to really understand who he is. And I think that. Uh, it may be confusing from us, but understanding that God was saying it that way because he wanted the people that this was written about to understand who he was. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's great to close on. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will be back in your podcast feed next week. Bye. Bye-bye.